0: Can turn in a Bible if you have one, to John 18. The text is printed in the bulletin on the next page. There, we'll look at John 18, 1 through 14 this morning. I a question for you: What is authority? What is true authority? Say that word out loud. In our culture, and um, people cringe. Right? Authority is is bad. Authority is something to be resisted. Something to be rejected. It's an idea to be overcome. <clears throat> is authority Is authority having a really impressive uh, or commanding bearing about you? Is that what authority is? Is authority the ability to inspire others and gain a following? These are some common conceptions, I think, of what authority is. Is authority the ability to speak in such a way that shuts down your opponents and wins all arguments? Is authority having a position where you you can pick up a phone and make things happen? Is authority having a position where you can pick up a sword and make things happen? Is, is it the power to control circumstances to accomplish your agenda or to, to convince and compel other people to get on board with your agenda and serve your purposes? Is authority simply being able to do whatever you want to do? I think a lot of people have problems with authority because uh, all they've seen is how sinners have corrupted true authority. <laughs> we don't understand what true authority is. Uh, we lost that concept a long time ago. <clears throat> God has all authority, and that is good. He has good authority, and it looks very different from what we might expect, what we conceive to be regular, regularly uh, true authority. Jesus has true authority, but it's not the kind... Where he stopped people from plotting against him, not the kind of authority where he stopped his betrayer from handing him over to the earthly authorities and set him up, uh, set, him, set himself up as the big boss, living in the big life. Right? That's getting everything that he wanted for himself. That's that's not Jesus' authority. When Jesus exercised his authority, he died. That was the exercise of his true authority. He died. He was the victim of great injustice. He was a victim of corruption. He was a victim of evil. But he wasn't tricked into being that victim. He wasn't intimidated. He wasn't overpowered. He wasn't at the mercy of his oppressors. He wasn't anybody's doormat. He wasn't being codependent to stay in an abusive relationship with humanity until we had no further use for him and killed him, kicked him to the curb. That's not what happened. He allowed himself to be betrayed and arrested. That's what we see in our passage this morning. And then mocked and tortured and killed. And even to be utterly misunderstood through it all, And for centuries to come, people look at Jesus and misunderstand his authority. They perceive it to be weakness. But this was an exercise of his true authority to give his life for love's sake. That doesn't make any sense to us. It overthrows us. It's also the most beautiful and wonderful thing the world's ever seen. It is good when Jesus overthrows you with his authority. It is good. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we pray that you would come and help us now through your Holy Spirit and help us to understand your word and receive it and be changed by it into the likeness of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I've lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So, in this scene, John's record, his account of the gospel, his eyewitness account. He's, uh, he's showing that we, we've just emerged from the upper room. We've spent several months in the upper room. Uh, the last five chapters of John's gospel are the record of Jesus' conversation around the table, around the dinner table, during his last meal with his disciples, and uh, including and, and finishing up with his high priestly prayer, which we just finished up last week. His betrayer, Judas, has already left the conversation by this time, And now Jesus leads his disciples out into the night to the showdown, so to speak. Normally, uh, this late in the evening after a feast, one would think about settling in for the night, maybe giving in to that food coma. But they, they leave the city. They cross the brook Kidron for the Mount of Olives and the Garden of the Oil Press, that is Gethsemane. This is sort of a condensed account of all of that. Uh, You see in the other Gospels, um, uh, sort of enlarged on the fact that Jesus goes out there and he prays, and his disciples actually do give in to the food coma and fall asleep on him a few times. But uh, before he's arrested, they spend some time in Gethsemane. (coughs) Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives here, across the brook Kidron. So just by the way, uh, the brook Kidron is mentioned in the Old Testament a few times, but it's mentioned when King David, the rightful king, He's driven out of the city. He's fleeing Jerusalem, and he crosses this brook. It says he crosses it toward the wilderness. As he's on his way out, he climbs the Mount of Olives, and he's weeping because the people turned against him because his own uh, advisor, one of his close friends, one of his trusted advisors, Ahithophel, uh, had betrayed him. So Ahithophel and Judas, the two betrayers of kings, Uh, They're the only two people in the Bible who end up hanging themselves because of what they've done. So now the son of David walks in his father's steps. The greater king, he's not fleeing from the betrayal, not fleeing from his betrayer. He's going out to meet him. So personally, I prefer to avoid conflict. I'm self-protective that way. I'm afraid that way. I don't, I don't love people enough to enter into conflict with them where I might be actually killed, to enter into that conflict with them for their good. There's a lot of fear that I've got to overcome to do anything like that at all. Jesus is not like me. Thank God. So Judas knew where to find Jesus. This was one of their sort of regular hangout spots that Jesus took the disciples. Um, So Jesus went there where he knew that Judas would be able to find him. Judas knows how normal people react when they're faced with conflict. Fight or flight, right? So in case Jesus tries to, he goes for the flight option, he tries to run and hide in the dark in the garden, he brings lanterns and torches. In case Jesus picks the fight and his disciples, they try to fight, he brought the armed forces. In fact, uh, when John writes that he brought a band of soldiers, the word that he uses there in the Greek normally refers to a Roman cohort of 600 soldiers, along with the Jewish temple guards and the Pharisees. So Judas is hoping to overwhelm and overpower Jesus by either a show of force that will just intimidate him, or, as a last resort maybe, the actual use of force. It's a it's the shock and awe campaign. That's what Judas is going for to overwhelm his enemy. It says in verse four, "Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, knowing all that would happen to him, did what? Fight or flight. Collapsed into a fetal position? Wish it would all go away? No, he didn't have a fear reaction like I'm sure I would have in this situation. Jesus is not like me. Thank God. He had come out to the garden for this very purpose. So, it says, knowing all that would happen to him, he came forward and he engaged with them. He engaged with them. And he asks, whom do you seek? So we know he isn't asking because he's ignorant. He knows exactly what's happening. He's asking questions like God asks questions. God, who knows what's happening, still asks questions, not because God is ignorant, not because God is lacking information, but in order to engage people who really don't know what they're doing. God's engaging God's asking you questions for your sake. He's not withdrawing. He's engaging. You remember the Garden of Eden when God was walking in the cool of the day. Basically, that means that fateful night in the first garden when God called to the man who had just sinned and said, Where are you? It's not like God's GPS froze up. He wasn't playing Marco Polo, fun game, in the garden. He was entering into dialogue with a sinner for the sinner's good to call that sinner to confession and repentance. He's engaging, and he's asking questions for Adam's sake. Adam didn't know what he was doing. Adam didn't know how bad things really were. Neither do Judas or the soldiers who are with him, know what they're doing, or know how bad things really are. They have no idea. They have no idea. So Jesus moves towards them, and he asks them probably the most meaningful question that anyone could ever ask. Whom do you seek? On the face of it, pretty straightforward question. See, you've got an army together, probably to come looking for someone. Who is it? On another level, though, it can expose the deepest questions and the pursuits of our lives. Usually we think in terms of, you know, what's the, what's the big question? What's the, the one big question we've all got to grapple with? What's the meaning of life? Why am I here? What's the purpose of all this? The main question is, whom do you seek? And it would be the most painful question to hear ourselves truly answer. Whom do you seek? You need to answer that question above all questions. Whom do you seek? It's the perfect question, and they have to answer it. They have to answer it. They can't escape it. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Literally, he uses the same divine self-identification that God uses very frequently in the Old Testament when he says, I am who I am. He just says, I am. Very important words. We've seen him use that self-identification so many times in John's gospel. He's really identifying himself with God. He's saying, I am. I am. He's the word of God. He's speaking with all God's authority. So when you see Jesus, when you hear Jesus, you're seeing God, you're hearing God himself in the flesh. Whom do you seek? He's the one you're looking for. He's the one you're looking for. So it says in Psalm 29 that the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Where in Joel's prophecy, chapter 3, it says, The Lord utters his voice and the heavens and the earth quake. In this case, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground, all of them, including Judas, his betrayer. No one can stand before God as he speaks, as he reveals himself. We fool ourselves into thinking that if it came to a showdown between us and God, we'd stand there angrily and we'd shake our fists at him and we can tear God down from his throne and we can can just stand against him, right? But all he has to do is open his mouth and our hearts stop. That's the way it really is. It happens every time sinners encounter God in the scriptures. They fall before him. They pass out. They cannot stand, can't stand against God. In fact, the scripture makes this promise there will be a day when everyone will fall at Jesus' feet, like these soldiers did. Every single person. Rodney Whitaker said that this reaction that they have, the soldiers there, it's not a reflection of their hearts, as if they were worshiping him, praising him, giving him the honor that he deserves. It's not a reflection of their hearts, but of Jesus' majesty. Here's a little preview, Rodney Whitaker says, a little preview of the moment in the future when every knee will bow to Jesus and all things be brought into subjection to him, even those who do not own allegiance to him, and thus for whom this submission is hell. This is a preview of hell. The good Lord Jesus Christ reveals himself, and the evil is exposed and withers before him, He is the Lord. We are not. And the inescapable knowledge of this is either heaven or it's hell. So it's true. It's true that right here, Jesus reveals himself in his majestic goodness, he reveals himself in his authority. The voice of the Lord is powerful, his enemies are powerless before him a whole army makes no difference. Raymond Brown says even when his hour has come, no one can lay a hand on Jesus until he permits it. Until he permits it. So he's he's revealing his authority in basically knocking down an army with two simple words. But knocking his enemies down with a word is not the real display of his power. That's not the real display of power that we see in this passage. That just helps you to see more clearly when he knocks down his enemies with a word. It just helps you to see more clearly that what he does next is true authority. That's the true display of his power. So he asks them again, whom do you seek? It may be a bit playful, like God often is when he repeats his questions to people who aren't getting it. But it isn't taunting. He's not playing cat and mouse. He's not being cruel. He's condescending to stay engaged in the dialogue and to move forward with them. He could end this all at any moment and walk away. It's probably what I would have done. Jesus is not like me. Thank God. He's not like me. I don't know if they were trembling with fear when they answered. He asked them again whom do you seek? Uh, should we say it? Remember what happened just a second ago? I don't know. Or if they were so audacious as to think they could actually stand this time, maybe they would be ready for it, so they could. Or, or if they were just crazy, stupid amnesiacs. They, they said exactly the same thing. Jesus of Nazareth? So Jesus answered, I told you. Get ready for it. <laughs> I am he. And then they wince and they cower. No. Um, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, Let these men go. And there it is. True authority. Take me, spare them. Take me, spare them. Jesus went into the conflict. He could have stayed at home. He could have fled. He could have destroyed them all. But he went into the conflict on behalf of his people, on behalf of his disciples, for love's sake, even to die for them so that they would be spared. He said earlier in John 10, the good shepherd discourse that he gave, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. That's obvious now. No one takes his life from him, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. So that authority is inconceivable to us. We don't even recognize it for what it is. Our version of authority is to reject God's will and set ourselves up as the center of the universe. Everything will serve me my pleasure my comfort my security my immortality his authority is to do god's will is to keep his father's charge which means giving himself up in order to protect and love sinners who hate him who are going to kill him ultimately it means drinking the cup of god's own wrath for them in their place Rodney Whitaker says that he issues orders to those arresting him. Their power has just been shown to be insignificant compared to the power of his word. And now the fulfillment of his word is the operative force. Take me, spare them. And John writes that this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. One. No, he just, he just prayed that in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. So he gave himself for them to safeguard them that night, that very night, from the soldiers, which was, of course, a picture of his power to save us from destruction, from being lost, to save us from God's wrath. His authority is an authority to save through self-sacrifice. That's what his authority is to save through self-sacrifice, an authority to love and to give himself, even when that self-gift is easily misinterpreted for weakness and failure. Because it looks like a failure when soldiers arrest you. It looks like a failure when they rough you up and when they nail you to a cross. And it looks like a failure when they laugh at you while you die. I imagine some of those soldiers thought they should get a promotion for capturing Jesus of Nazareth. I imagine any good social worker would advise Jesus to leave that abusive relationship. So who's in charge here? Who demonstrates true authority? Did the betrayer have the victory over Jesus? Did they walk all over Jesus? Was Jesus desperately foolish to stay in that abusive relationship? It says later in John's Gospel, in chapter 19, Pilate, who's sort of the big boss in the picture here, in terms of earthly authorities, Pilate says to him, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You'd have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Now, Jesus has the true authority. But if you give your life into the hands of an enemy, then, then he'll think that he had the victory over you, and he'll think that he took your life from you. And Jesus had the authority to give his life anyway, even though there, there was that misunderstanding. And there has been that misunderstanding that Jesus was just crushed under the the wheels of the world's authority. Weak and a failure. His identity wasn't bound up with what his enemies thought of him. He didn't need them to think, oh, no, you really are in charge here. He wasn't threatened by the thought of being misunderstood. It was painful what he was about to do. It was painful. But it was a pain that he was willing to suffer for love's sake. No one made him suffer it. He was willing to suffer it in order to reveal his father to a world that hated him. And when that kind of love really starts to dawn on us, we can't take it. You can't take it. Don't fool yourself into thinking that if you were one of Jesus' disciples, you really would have understood and seen what he was doing that night and been on board with it. We prefer our version of empowerment. Self-empowerment. We prefer that to whatever it is Jesus is calling authority here. You know, being able to convince other people, compel and control other people for our agenda, being in a position where you can maybe threaten them so that they're no longer a threat to you, to your security. Being in a position where you can pick up a sword and make things happen. Pick up a phone and make things happen for your own sake. That's the kind of empowerment we prefer to this. That's what Simon Peter goes for. Verse 10, Simon Peter, having a sword drew it, and struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. Attempted murder. That's what Peter does when he grabs for power. When he grabs for the power to save, it amounts to attempted murder. That's what empowerment is. That's what self-empowerment is. Me over and against you. And the scriptures call that hatred and murder. Survival of the fittest, if, of course, that means me. I don't care what it says about you, as long as it means me. So D.A. Carson points out that Peter's bravery is not only useless. It's a denial of the work to which Jesus has just consecrated himself. It's a failure to comprehend the Messiah's work. So, So Jesus rebukes Peter for the umpteenth time. Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? So I love how Jesus isn't exasperated. He doesn't give up on Peter, like I probably would have. Jesus is not like me. Thank God. Cuz Peter is eminently give up onable. But Jesus says, "Look. Look, I'm being arrested." This is not an interruption to the regular course of our ministry. This is exactly what I was sent by the Father to do. This, this physical, temporal, this ordeal that I'm suffering, that I'm facing, it's soldiers and death in this world. Physical, tangible, temporal ordeal that I'm suffering. It has tremendous spiritual and eternal significance. This is the Father's plan. This is the Father's command. that's why I'm going to do it. He says earlier in John's gospel, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And that means be arrested. And that means be tortured and mocked and killed. The cup of which Jesus speaks in our passage, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? It's the cup of God's wrath against sin. Sin that's going to be poured out. It's going to be poured out on the world. And Jesus means to drink it for us by going to the cross for his people to save us, to spare us, so that we won't be lost. And he'll drink it because his Father gives it to him. So Leslie Newbegin said, In the strange mercy of God, the cup of his righteous wrath against the sin of the world is given into the hands, not of his enemies, but of his beloved son. So Jesus knows full well what it all means, but he won't run from the pain and he won't pick up the sword for self-empowerment. His true authority to save is already at work, already at work. You see it right here. Even though Peter attacks Malchus, he has immunity. He has immunity because of Jesus. 600 Roman soldiers didn't pile onto Peter because Jesus had authority to give himself up as a substitute for Peter. Take me, but spare them. It's already a work. So they arrest Jesus. They bind him. It's kind of silly to do when someone comes with you of their own will, right? It's, it's needless. It's actually it's a pitiful assertion of power over him to bind him like that. And they took him in a mockery of justice to Annas. Annas used to be the high priest, but he's not anymore. Now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is high priest that year. So they sort of kept it in the family. So it was Caiaphas, it says, who back in uh, John 11 had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Instead of all of us getting destroyed by the Roman Empire for what Jesus is doing. Well, if we just offer him up, if we just let them kill him, then all the people will be spared. That was Caiaphas' idea. So Annas, where they take Jesus, Annas is no one official. But he's the power behind the throne, so to speak. So it's like they took Jesus into the back room where the back room dealings happen, where this evil father and evil son Hatched the plan to sacrifice Jesus. And the great irony is that this was all going according to the eternal plan of the Heavenly Father and the Good Son, the true high priest, to provide a sacrifice for the sins of all the people, to spare them from death and separation from God. So, what Annas and Caiaphas meant for evil, God meant for good. Jesus knew all that. He wasn't overcome by the evil of this parallel father-son team. He wasn't overcome by that evil. He wasn't ground under by the oppressive powers that be. He overcame evil with good. Take me, spare them. And that love shows who's really in charge here. <clears throat> so, in closing, let me just offer a brief reflection on the significance of that for us today. Jesus exercised true authority to lay down his life and, to take it up again, he says, And after his resurrection, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not a different kind of authority. The same kind of authority. He still has all authority in heaven and on earth. His, his authority now is still the same nature. It's the authority of self-gift for the sake of love. The authority of self-gift for the sake of love is what Jesus exercises. He just commands the same authority to a greater extent now. And he even shares that authority with us now. So now he superintends all things in such a way that nothing can stop you from laying down your life for love's sake. Nothing can stop that. Because Jesus is really in charge. Nothing can stop you from laying down your life for love's sake in testimony to the Father's love to a world that hates him and us. So you rule with him as kings and queens in a kingdom where everyone is kings and queens, where everyone has this same authority. Everyone has this same authority to exercise when you give up your life in ways that the world mocks, in, the, in ways that the world laughs at, you give up your life anyway, to reveal God to them. You rule with Christ, and he exercises his universal authority through you when you love, when you serve others, in ways that are easily misinterpreted as weakness or failure, because you're not threatened by those misinterpretations. Because your identity is secure in the Father's love. Jesus' authority extends into the world when his body, his body enters into conflict and allows itself to be betrayed and arrested and mocked and scorned and killed for the good of its enemies, even when that looks like the enemy has the victory. Jesus' authority overthrows the world's ideas of empowerment, and it reveals the true self giving nature of the divine power, God's own power, the power of self gift. And you're more than welcome to join him in the exercise of this power. Just a warning, though, as we look at Jesus and what happened to him as he headed toward his crucifixion, it's probably going to hurt. It's probably going to hurt. But because we have a God who resurrects his beloved, it'll be okay after. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we see your true authority exercised through Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us, in spite of the fact that we were his enemies and laughed at him at his death and thought we had the victory over him, We see your authority, and we think it is wonderful and beautiful, and hope that you would continue to reveal it to us as we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, as we consider who you are and what you've done for us in the gospel. And we pray that you'd help us in some way to share his authority in the world by laying down our lives for the sake of love. We ask that you would reveal to us those places where we can take up our cross and follow Jesus, It's a hard thing to say, that you would show us to do such a thing, that you would lead us in doing such a thing. But because of your Holy Spirit, uh, you've made us to be willing to follow Jesus, to follow in his footsteps. And so we pray for help, we pray for strength to live as Jesus has lived, and even to die as Jesus has died for the sake of love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.